Welcome to A Moment of Bach, bonus content for Bachtoberfest. And this episode features an interview that we had with Oakland area musician, conductor, and composer Jim Meredith. But first, we found uh, one more listener comment that we want to squeeze in, uh, even though we already covered most of them in our main Bachtoberfest celebration episode. And it's a question and comment from Riley. What is your opinion on Bach's fugue in G minor, the little fugue? I feel like it is Bach at his best when he composed it, and I love the change from minor to major tonality. The two presentations of the theme in the major keys gives me a real sense of joy. So my answer to to Riley is that I think that Bach's Little Fugue in G minor is, for some people, I think that might be their entry to Bach. It's one of the one of the more famous Bach pieces, maybe even top ten. What do you, I don't know what you think, Alex? Top ten, top twenty at least. I think so. Yeah, so, yeah, maybe fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly recognizable. Yeah. So it has it has a history with a lot of us. I have a great memory of being maybe high school or something or, or college, uh, being in some sort of brass ensemble playing this and playing a transcription of this. There's a Canadian brass recording of it that's really nice. Also, a bit of a stretch, but my daughter's initials are are the transposed version of this first three notes, E, B, G. <laughs> that was not on purpose, even though the other mm-hmm. um, Bach-related stuff about her name was on purpose. But it's, it's a very elegantly composed fugue. It has a really nice variety of contour within its subject alone just even when there's just the first part alone it's got such a memorable first three long notes and then it has the faster stuff that we associate with fugue afterwards yeah it's it's like a textbook fugue it's kind of like the ur fugue you know <laughs> like yeah. the fugue of all fugues it's like it starts like you say with those longer notes it's a striking and very simple interval minor triad is being spelled out right at the beginning and then the notes get faster, and then they get faster, and then they start skipping, bum, 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 until they get to the fast 16th note runs. So the tension just keeps on getting increased. But also the harmonically, it's a textbook fugue, you know, in that, I mean, of course, he's going to follow the rules, but not every fugal subject does what this one does, but it like, the way it just flits back and forth between the tonic and dominant feel is really nice. That is, again, pretty typical, but this one I feel like it does it even more than most other fugue subjects. Because it's so clear what's happening, even just with one voice. It's so clear where the tonic is and where the dominant is and how it's jumping between them. It's a little bit like the Toccata of the Toccata and Fugue, or the Fugue of the Toccata and Fugue in, in D minor. It is, yeah. In that, in that way. It has sort of a compound line. It has one note that's repeated and then another melody that's, that's offset by, by a 16th note that is the actual moving part. But together, they make sort of a melody plus a harmony note. Yeah. We talked in that episode about Toccata and Fugue in D minor that there's some question within the scholarship of Bach as to whether that piece was actually written by Bach. 
Mm-hmm. But every time I look at this piece, the little fugue in G minor, and then compare them, I do find myself struck by the similarity. Yeah. Like when I listen to that on its own, Toccata and Fugue, I do think, oh, yeah, that doesn't really sound as much like other Bach stuff. But I could see it being a younger Bach piece. But then I listen to this and I go, oh, I could totally see these two being written by the same composer. There's little thematic similarities throughout. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I, I have a lot more to say, but I'll save some of it for an, an episode on the on the piece. But the one thing that Riley mentioned was the change from minor to major tonality. Yeah. And I'm also going to probably save some of my comments of this until we do an episode on on it. But but I, I love that moment too because when you when you have a piece of music in the classical period that's in a major key, it will often travel to a secondary key which will seem a little bit farther away, and then have a nice dramatic return and reassuring and confirming return back home at the end. But that secondary key will be another major key, probably. However, when you are in a minor key, like G minor, a very passionate sort of key like this one, your secondary area is going to be one of... It's kind of the opposite. Your secondary area is going to be one of beautiful momentary repose, like an oasis, until you finally get back to the big, imposing starkness of the minor back at the end. It's the power of, of the major and minor system that composers in the Western world benefited from for hundreds of years, you know, from 1600 to when it finally sort of broke down around after 1900. Right, and, it, and this kind of thing wouldn't work in the medieval modes because there isn't enough groundedness to those. Yeah. Like having a major and minor be so strong as they were in the common practice era for Western classical music is what makes that music have its rules you know like harmonically at least and that's what allowed composers the freedom to actually go in depth with these like interesting axes between major and minor give music a lot more like emotional heft to the music because you could you could really play with the differences between the major and minor sounds whereas before was when it was modal there wasn't as much there wasn't a much striking difference between keys and sounds So we're going to get to the Jim Meredith interview, but I also don't want to forget to say, Alex, you mentioned a couple of things that you've done in your in your musical work in Orange County in our Southern California area over the course of the last year or so. And I almost forgot to say that I will be conducting Nun kommt der Heiden Highland, BWV61, the entire cantata, actually a bit of a shorter one, 17 minutes or so, which we've done several episodes on in a moment of Bach. Episode two of the first season, episode two of the second season. It's one of my favorite cantatas of all time. It's showy, experimental, young Bach, extremely colorful with special effects. I'm doing it within my yearly Christmas carol festival that I have, that I put on at my church where I direct music. And this is in Orange County on Sunday, December 11th of this year. Listener, if you're interested in that, just look at the description of this podcast episode for more details, if you happen to be around the area at that time. So in the interview that we have with Jim, we talk about handbells as an instrument and as an ensemble. Before you hear the interview, it would be good to know what what that means. The instrument is what you think it is. It's a bell. Uh, But what people don't understand sometimes is that as an ensemble, the handbell is played by anywhere from a few to over a dozen people on a range of many octaves, and they play together. And the music, uh, the performance is therefore a different thing, because it's sort of like a team instrument. And it's also very much stereotyped into just being something that is done at Christmas or for fun or for education. And Jim Meredith is very much in fierce opposition to those stereotypes. 
for his whole life. And that's something we talk about with his work with the handbell ensemble Sonos. Sonos is a professional handbell ensemble in the Bay Area. They've been around for over 30 years. We will link them in the description, but it would take too long to credit all of the things they've done over the years. But they have done things to the highest level. They have been all over the world. They have worked with and collaborated with all kinds of professional musicians of other types. Singers, choirs, Kronos Quartet even. It goes on and on. And Jim himself is a composer and the director of Sonos. So it's it's really not an exaggeration to say that Jim is one of the only handbell directors who is using the instrument in this way. And it might come as no surprise to some of you listeners that uh, he is a big Bach person. Yeah. This, this tends to be more unsurprising the more we learn about Bach because musicians of a high degree of professionality, they usually appreciate Bach. It just goes with the territory. But what interests us for this podcast and why we wanted to bring this to you is the music of Bach being arranged or transcribed for the handbell ensemble by Jim for Sonos. And so that's what we want to share a little bit with you about today. Mentioned in the interview are also hand chimes. This is a related but different instrument that's not a bell, but like a metal tone bar. You might recognize it if you uh, if you saw one. So the links are in the description to the things that Jim talks about during this episode. Alex, do you want to add anything to what I said? Handbells are cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true that what you said about Jim and his exploration of interesting sounds, not only has Sonos worked with some really impressive people in the music world, but also I've always admired Jim's particular approach to handbells and the sonority. He's really concerned with the, the sounds that he's getting from that instrument, not just trying to like play a transcription of Bach for, for the sake of doing it, but really trying to get something unique out of it. And uh, he cares so much about the detail of the sound of the instrument. That has always really charmed me about his his sort of approach. Mm-hmm. You can tell in their performance. It's really cool. It's unique to the handbell world. It is. Uh, I'd say that 95% of the handbell world tends to just get together and play the same relatively small recent repertoire written by a lot of living composers that is very idiomatic to the instrument of handbells and works really well, but doesn't really explore everything you could do sound-wise with the instrument, nor does it really ever try to capture the older things that I think Jim was also after with his uh, transcriptions of Bach. Yeah, I mean, you, you could ask yourself, well, little bells have been around that have made pitches for millennia, so why didn't composers like Bach use handbells? And the answer is simply that the instrument wasn't standardized like it is now, and the version that we have now the bells are free of a lot of overtones that they would have had before, and I'm way oversimplifying this, but basically the modern handbell ensemble that we know now here in the U.S. is a sort of version of an English instrument, but it's an instrument that didn't exist in this form in the pure tone that you can hear it now, mm-hmm. even before like the 1950s. It didn't exist in that form. So the music, as you say, Christian, is relatively new, mm-hmm. and a lot of it are transcriptions of classical stuff, but a lot of it is also new arrangements and compositions. And the instrument can do a lot of technical things, a lot of extended techniques. It's it's a playground for contemporary composers, really. It should be. They should avail themselves more of it because yeah, they can do lots of interesting techniques with handbells and emulating orchestral things, pizzicato things, and other kind of off-the-wall random things. Some very weird, interesting things you can do with handbells. Christian, you're obviously your doctoral dissertation was all about this so i mean handbells is just it's a deep well that's waiting to be drawn out of still in the music world 
Yeah, and there's no one who understands this more than Jim Meredith. And so with that, let's bring him on. You have come up on our podcast discussion before, Jim, you have wound up arranging for handbells or transcribing or engraving for handbells a lot of so-called classical music or or Baroque music even, which is uh, you know not always heard on that level of seriousness of music, not always heard on, on that instrument. Your various Sonos arrangements of box music, I can think of Esurientes, aria that you that you arranged and you also more recently we've heard you we've heard sonos do the uh omench organ prelude that you arranged for handbells the first Bach we did was the box transcription of the vivaldi concerto in a minor oh right yeah oh. which we probably will be bringing back pretty soon it's been a while since we played that it's a great piece and we recorded all three of those movements but we wound up playing mostly just the just the first movement as an opening in a concert, which is really great. Right. Yeah, we've recorded several on our on our classical Sonos album. We did the Omensch, we did the oh, Gott will ich lassen. Now we did Jesu Joy Man's Desiring, in an arrangement I did, which is not a direct transcription of the the tune is there, but the accompaniment is slightly different from the from the original. Hmm. Oh God, we use oboe as the Cantus firmus. There are a few, yeah, on that on that album. I love Bach. Being a church musician, how can you not? Well, I don't I don't think I've ever run into anybody who doesn't appreciate Bach. Now I had an aunt who didn't like Bach because she said it sounds like sewing machine music to her. <laughs> uh, any, any professional musician or composer, I, I can't imagine anybody you know not liking Bach. I have composer friends who. You know, don't like Beethoven, or Debussy didn't like Beethoven. You know, mm. like Mozart and Bach, but not Beethoven. But uh, I haven't. Have you ever run into anybody who doesn't, you know, professional musician, who doesn't appreciate Bach? No, it's usually it's usually a relationship of how serious they are as a musician equals how seriously they love Bach. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, God. As long as they know him, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Or they just don't know enough yet to love it. Right. Sometimes that. But. Right. They know a few tunes. I mean, if you just take the harmonizations of the chorales alone, that Riemann Schneider book, you know, of box harmonization, how many? <laughs> 371. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, obviously, those are just, if you take any one tune, there, there are several different harmonizations. And you you imagine that when he played them in church, because the church organist in, in, in Europe, they just have a, what master lead sheet. They have the hymn tune. Yeah. You have to improvise the accompaniment from that. And so yeah. I can imagine, you know, if you sang the same hymn tune for, for 10 Sundays and Bach was playing, you'd get, well, if they say five verses, you get 50 different arrangements. Yeah. What <laughs> drove one of his churches crazy when he came back from Lübeck having heard, uh, was it Pachelbel? Yeah. Looks to who does. Yeah. yeah, and and they complained. The town fathers complained that he introduced all sorts of strange tonalities into the hymns, 
<laughs> being away for two months instead of instead of the four weeks that he was supposed right. To. He was gone. Yeah, he was gone too long, and he came back with. That's right, because he had, he had to walk. I mean, he couldn't afford a carriage. Yeah, I'm just reading right now, actually, a biography of Luther, Martin Luther, and uh, you guys, Lutheran, right? Background. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And Luther had when he had all these meetings, the Diet of Worms, or or whether he had to he had to walk. <laughs> couldn't afford, you know, a horse or a carriage. So take two weeks to get somewhere. Yeah. I wonder, you know, Bach, when he traveled, he he was always talking. He was always ha- uh, like had opinions on the in- instruments, on the organs that he played. And yeah, and he was very particular about the tone and stuff like that. I know we have some some evidence of that, of those conversations and letters and things about the tone. And but it's, that's something I kind of want to ask you about, Jim, about about that. I mean, is there something particular that you want to get at with the tone of Bach um, when you try to do it on handbells. It's, it's hard, like we said, with with tonal interest with bells. But how do you solve that? How do you do yeah, that? Well, of course, you're dealing with a percussion instrument versus an organ, which is a sustained or even orchestra when the orchestra plays the chorales and various cantatas. Mm-hmm. So that's an issue. If you were to just play the chorale, the homage chorale, not the Bach ornamented chorale, it would be, yeah. it would be really, it'd be kind of dead. It would be hard to sustain. You'd have to take it fast enough so that it didn't every every beat didn't fall after every beat, you know, the interest in the in the line didn't fall after every beat. Yeah. And so with the ornamentation of course that helps to sustain the line. But also uh, you know in the in the recording we do uh, I do I double the chorale melody on hand chimes. That's there at the same time as the bells are playing the ornamental version. The chime sound has a lot more sustain than the than the, the bell sound. So that helps to sustain that as well. And then of course we did, in the recording that we did, the classical sonos, we didn't use chimes in the bass. We just used the chimes doubling the, the melody at the, at the hmm. end the hymn tune that we played it on this last tour we added an octave below in the chimes because then we had the the big really low chimes that we didn't have before so we were able to to get all of those pretty much all of those notes there and uh that also makes a difference in in the sustained value of it but you've got to have that line and the people have to feel that line when they're playing and when they're doing the ornamentation which has to feel spontaneous and not robotic You got these trills, you know. And sometimes they're shared between two people. Uh, we try to arrangement so they're, you know, not. But they have a suffix to the trill, which has to usually be a third person. If one person is managing the two notes of the trill, the principal note and the upper auxiliary, then there'll be a suffix, suffix which is the lower auxiliary, and uh, and then so there's another person involved in timing that exactly right. So it's a little bit tricky, you know, it can't be done. Sonos knew how much I love that piece, particularly. And I mean, just that chromatic ascent in the bass that just comes up and up and up. And then oh, yeah. major six chord barred from the parallel minor. 
you know, from E flat minor, and it's a C flat chord. That's so startling. The text is, because this is passion. This is the passion text from the from from Luke. O man, bewail thy sins, which is often not translated. O man, bewail thy manifold sins. And it talks about you know Christ coming and taking the sins away. And you have that slow chromatic ascent, as if the climb through you know the town to the cross, and then finally the death and the transcendent. of that chord is like a transcendental moment right there at the end of the chorale where they speak about taking the sins away. It, it just is transcendental, you know, it's really, it's just, just astounding and, and marvelous. So it's, uh, it's a pretty remarkable piece. But Bach, I mean, he does that in a lot of pieces. Uh, the B minor mass at that point in the uh, Passus Est. Yeah, the end of the Crucifixus. Yeah. It's just sublime. I mean, it's just. I, I yes. Era appreciated it, but I don't know. They did. His sons didn't so much. They just, no. you know, used his manuscripts to wrap fish in when they went. To <laughs> fish. But he, he he was something else. I mean, he he had a direct pipeline. There's no doubt about it. And and all the the stories of his improvisations. I mean, Jiminy, the musical offering. You know, which he came back and was an improvisation. He came back and wrote it down. <laughs> How long does a musical offering take? 10, 15 minutes, maybe? Yeah. Could you sit down and improvise something and then a few hours later write out exactly what you had written? What you had yeah. improvised? It's, it's so complex. And just the, um, we talked before on the show about like the puzzly nature of the music, especially musical offering, right? It's all like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he would have loved, you know, Sudoku or crossword or whatever. You know, like he's oh, yeah. oh, absolutely. He was yeah. greatly into numbers. There's a, there's a TV program on PBS called Now Hear This. Have you heard this series? Oh man, no. hear this series. What's his name? Scott Yu, who's a violinist and a conductor. So he has a summer music festival in Southern California somewhere out in the mountains. Scott Yu does this series for PBS on various composers and various musical genres sometimes. He started, I think, with Scarlatti, the Maverick and about Scarlatti's history in Spain and what he, the sources that he drew from. He does all these things on location. It's documentary film on location. Nice. They meet contemporary musicians who plays on the music and he does the history. It's the, the production values are absolutely over the top. And uh, Scott Yu is a fine performer himself. It's called uh, Now Hear This. You really got to check it out. Scarlatti wow. he does the whole thing on Bach. And he does the thing on, you know, Bach's, the, the, the one portrait that we know is original, is, is real of Bach, is the one where he shows in his hand 
the small little manuscript of the thing that he wrote to join the musical society and the enigma of what that music is and how it works out as a canon. It's, you, you, you gotta see, it's it's on PBS. You have to have Passport, you know, which is a subscription series. But he has three seasons of that. And he does Beethoven, he does Mozart, he does uh, Handel, Schubert. Uh, he just did two series, one on the American masters, starting with the early, you know, starting Copeland. Mm. Fantastic. And then he does one on uh, the Great Migration, which was from after the Civil War of all the black musicians in the South who moved north to Chicago and New York and Detroit. And then he does one on Florence Price. I don't know if you know that name. Florence Price was an African-American composer, fabulous composer, you know, and we're just now beginning yeah. to know about all this. Yeah. I've known about him quite some time because I, I work with a lot of kids who are, you know, who are, who are minorities. But uh, the public's just beginning to, to appreciate the, the value that these, these composers right. bring. Anyway, so that's a long rant on uh, on that. But you gotta you got to see this program. You, you'll be astounded at it's, it's the beauty of it and the information that, that it imparts. I'd link to that in our podcast episode. Yeah, you should. Everybody should watch it. Waiting for the next season to drop. Kind of just yeah, I wanted to just the you you had mentioned some of this, Jim, but just the particular challenge of playing Bach on handbells and mostly I kind of want to get into your philosophy of Sonos and how you how important tone it tone color and tone sound is to you and how you achieve what you want with it. I know that's like pretty unusual even in the world of handbells. Yeah, the problem with handbells is that they tend to be fairly monochromatic. Yeah. At least when they introduce chimes, you got a little a little difference there. So when they play Baroque music, it works very well in one sense that you can hear all the lines pretty clearly. But in the other sense, one of the major things about Baroque music, which is important, is articulation. And handbell players, except for techniques that give you thumb damp and that kind of stuff, they don't do articulation. And for example, we did the bum ba dum bum bum ba dum bum bum ba dum ba dum. We did that correctly on our tune. So most people would play it bum ba da 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 you lose all the two-note slur articulations with the sh- with the staccato at the end of them. Bum ba da dum ba dum ba dum ba dum. So people hey. would, do, would would put in a maybe a, a a thumb damp or something for those notes. Well, that's okay, but I created what I called quick damp. Bum ba da dum. So you stop the. You have to use fingers. You have to use. And I'd prefer handbell world that you call it rather than thumb damp. You call it thumb mute. Because you're muting the sound, whereas mm. damping, you know, it's a different a different thing. So, uh, but that's I, I, yeah, yeah, it's true. I struggled with the with the uh, nomenclature committee for a long time about that. But yeah, you use mute when you hold your thumb or your hand around the bell. That's a mute sound, okay? And thumb damp to mean quick damp. So you get a 
bum pa da dum pa dum pa dum pa dum. You get you get this detaché, which is used in baroque music all the time. So that takes a lot more work. First of all, it's hard to get that accurately, and second of all, it looks horrible when you see them doing that on stage. <laughs> it just ruins the entire line of the music. Yeah, right? and it's, it's jarring. Yeah. So I've also called done like robot ring. I've said out here, and you damp with your thumb or your hand. And you've probably seen Sonus does a lot of that. That's what I prefer. So that that's the, the line, the musical line, is so, so important in Baroque music, in all music, actually. And how you shape it and what, uh, where you're going with the line and then where you're coming from, all of those things are really, really important. And most uh, handbell players just have no concept of that. And most directors, well, listen, face it, they've got a hard job. They have to take people who don't, a lot about music necessarily, but love music and love to play it, who can play their individual notes, but they don't have a concept of the whole thing. And that's what you have to have. And the group needs to know what the concept of the whole thing is. And so we did a lot of talking about this when we were rehearsing the Omench for this last tour. And uh, it was only actually in Las Vegas, after you guys heard us in down in Dana Point, in rehearsal, that that finally gelled yeah in rehearsal and it just if you've ever had those experiences where you start something i talked about what i what i need you know from you guys and we started something rehearsal and then it started to just take off on its own and i didn't really have to do very much i I could you know i just kept it going and at the end everybody was silent they knew something happened at that rehearsal that had never happened before. And I almost cried. And I said, thank you. It was a really, really beautiful moment, you know, those moments when you have like that. So that's the goal, of course, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you live for those moments. You live for those moments, but you can't make them happen. Yeah, that's true. They just have to come together. Yeah. Any rate, so does that answer your question maybe about that and then of course yeah. in my in my composing and arranging i like to think i'm an orchestrator rather than just a you know transcriber or whatever and the bigger pieces when there are various sections and different colors i try to use whatever techniques possible to highlight that you know that idea of the original work as if i can and if i can't make that work then i try to find something else that would make that section stand on its own. And, and I like to, to use chimes, you know, sometimes an octave lower, sometimes at the same unison with stuff. And how much, what the balance between the bells and the chimes are determines the color of the piece. I know the first time I used chimes along with bells was in the tune in uh, from Nutcracker. Oh, yeah, that dance to the... Uh, dance of the Reapers. That's the Reapers. That's it. Yeah. When that when there's that long line that's in there while the other parts doing da 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 dum dum, that's a dotted half note or something, and it was just getting lost, you know. So I said, well, can we double that on chimes? And they did, and it made a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when I then I realized that colors can be manipulated by balances, and that's another thing in bells. People rarely work on balancing a chord. Everybody just plays. And of course, the high bells scream louder than anything else. And so that's all you hear. But 
if you take that same lock chord and say, look, this top note, yeah, that's the melody note, but let's take the octave that's in the chord below that and maybe the octave below that, and let's make them louder than the top note. Changes color immediately. Yeah. So we got to do those things. Right, and you could go your whole career not ever thinking about that kind of thing, but, but when you do it, it completely changes everything. Yeah. That's great. No, I, I always appreciated your you know your attention to that kind of detail. I think it, Sonos is probably the most perfectly named handbell ensemble that there is. You know, I've just it's you said you you said you thought of that name, right? You yeah. you requested yeah. that. Yeah. And, and the reason was I said we want we want to create a group that is musical and we want to be able to play you know, we want a name that's we can use in Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. And we want to be able to play uh, collaborations with all sorts of other ensembles like Kronos, the quartet. You know the Kronos Quartet, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, sure, yeah. So that's uh, Sonos, Sonare, you know, from the, to sound, yeah. which makes a perfect sense in terms of the translation. Okay. Of course, it was long after that that the, that the uh, sound company, the speaker system company, oh. <laughs> yeah. right. that came about. And they actually, uh, their legal department called me at one time wanting to buy our Sonos.org website name. Oh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't respond to them. I, I should should go back to the same now. How about sponsoring? <laughs> you know, as, as, a as a corporate, you know, and we'll play all sorts of concerts for you. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> but then I said, I said, Sonos meets Kronos would be a perfect title for a concert. Yeah. that was it. Yeah, it's just that that focus on musical tone. It's just, and yeah, it, it's a palindrome. Yeah. And you could turn it upside down and it's all the same too. That's right. What the word for that is? It's an ambigram. Is that? Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so cool. that's where we are, trying to trying to drag the handbell world into the into the professional musical relationship or whatever, you know. Yeah, that's a noble cause. <laughs> it's a noble, and yeah. it's fraught with <laughs> lots of resistance sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know. But it, it's, I mean, I've always been enamored of the sound of bells. And the physicality of playing them is also fun. That was what I first experienced. And then my question, as I've often said, is can they be musical? So we set out to prove that they could. And we've done a pretty good job, I think, of that. It's yeah. still a lot to go. The the ultimate test of, of answering that question maybe is can can you adequately do Bach on them? Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and if I think the answer is yes, because of your recordings and performances, so I guess that answers the question. Thank you guys. All right. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Right. Until next time, enjoy those moments.